G'day, Phil Gould here. You are listening to Set Restart, the podcast which tackles all things rugby league, from grassroots levels right through to the professionals. No topic gets the red card on Set Restart. Welcome to Set Restart. My name's Craig O'Donnell. And I'm Joe Morley. On this week's episode, we're joined by one of the most versatile people ever to be involved in the game of rugby league, a former player, a former assistant coach, a former head coach, involved in the international setup, and former boss of the referees. Welcome, John Sharp. How are you doing, John? Hi, Craig. Hi, Joe. Uh, it's great to be here. It's a it's a long resume, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say, John. Is, is there anything you can't do in rugby league? Oh, in rugby league, yeah. Uh, <laughs> some say coach, some said I couldn't play either. So there's one thing, I always gave it my best anyway. So uh, I did all right. I managed to eke out a career for a little while. Well, I think more than, uh, what is it, more than 300 games for LFC? Your beloved LFC, as I've recently read, you you referred to them as. I mean, you, you can't have been that bad of a player, John. Come on. Yeah, it's uh, it was a special time, Craig. It, it certainly was. I got got to experience playing alongside some of the all-time greats and played in a, a couple of really good teams, a couple of really bad ones as well. But <laughs> uh, but that's that's the part of the process as well, you know, experiencing those those downsides as well. Uh, yeah, I think I've got here that you made your debut when you were 17 against. Featherstone, John, for, for Hull FC. And and the names in that team is, is just unbelievable. I, I just want to know what it was like for a 17-year-old to be a part of, you know, the all-time greats of, of Hull FC. It was a, it was a, I remember it so, so clearly as well, Joe. It was, it was Boxing Day at Featherstone and it was during the minor strike. And I had no idea that, that I'd be included in the, in the starting uh, 15 as it was then. Uh, I was invited along for experience, and Arthur Bunting, the wily old fox, never, never spoke about if I'd be playing or I'd had no inclination during the week in training. I was just asked to come along and, and get involved with, with practice and just for my development, really, I suppose. And then just an hour or so before kickoff, Arthur said, "Yeah, you're on the bench, John," and it was just an unbelievable feeling and a really smart coaching. Arthur was a a great tactician and one of the things he clearly had thought about was that he didn't want to build it up to be a massive occasion for a 17 year old playing against his hometown club and you know my granddad used to be the groundsman at Featherstone and believe it or not I used to live in one of the terrace houses on post office road when I was born so it was a it was a massive occasion for us and I remember the game it's the first time I'd ever played against adults and it was just it was surreal. It was. It couldn't have happened at a better place at Post Office Road, and I just love the occasion and and some of the fallout afterwards as well. I'm, I'm not sure. Not sure if you guys know, but there's lots of trouble in the main street at Featherstone with with uh, I can't say it's rioting, but the miners and the police were clashing afterwards because there was a lot of unrest and a lot of ill feeling towards the police and and towards the miners during that that miner uh, miners strike. So. I remember the stories afterwards about how the police clashed with the with the fans. So, but 
on the field, it was brilliant. A fantastic occasion. 17 years old, playing alongside some all-time greats was was something I'll I'll always remember. Do you think, John, was was that um, had you taken had 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 the situation arisen where you, Arthur had to put you in because someone had dropped out, or was it always part of his plan to include you on the bench and, like you said, just keep it completely under wraps? I think Arthur never did anything on a whim. He was he was a great thinker of the game. He, he had a good feel for the game. He, he knew his players. He knew he knew and understood them really well and how they ticked. And he was. He was well known for bringing young players on, and that was one of the reasons. If we if we dig into that a little and go a little bit further in, that was a big reason why I went to Hull FC because I knew that these young players were given opportunities, and you know, to the hilt, he, he backed it really. He proved that all the promises that he made when I signed on at 17, all the promises that he made, he, he fulfilled. Yeah, because I read that you you turned down offers from from Leeds and Saints at the time. Is that is that correct, John? Oh, Joe, there were crazy times. There were really crazy times. I, I remember um, my dad was always hard on me when I played. He was uh, very critical and pushed me and pushed me to my limits, really. And uh, sometimes to, to detriment as well of confidence and that. But I never really thought I was a great player. I always thought it was just a trier who, who did all right. And then at 15, I, I got picked for Yorkshire schoolboys. Um Thought it must have been a mistake, but I turned up and played and did all right and eventually got picked in an England schoolboys team that, that contained a hell of a lot of good players, including Sean Edwards uh, and Richard Gunn, uh, Martin McDer- Martin Dermott, the hooker from Wigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was lots of, lots of really good players in that team. So I, I bumbled my way into an England team and kicked five goals in the, fire, in, in the game against France at, at Central Park and things were, were ticking along nicely for me then and all of a sudden, I've got uh, Leeds Rhinos on the on the phone, um, wanting well, they invited my mum and dad and myself to the Leeds game against Queensland. Um, it guests in the boardroom and then onto the uh, seating area, heading and watching uh, smoking Kilroy, the fullback, and Wally Lewis playing, and and watching Scott Lewis as well catching some unbelievable passes from Wally and. We're we're sat there, all three of us, just thinking this is unbelievable. What a what a fantastic opportunity that I might be presented with. What a great club. At that time, Eric Hawley was the head scout of Leeds, and he'd scouted some of the great players in the game, including Ellery Anley. And Eric went all out to get to get myself and my teammate at Traveller Saints, Richard Gunn. So parents were swapping notes. Uh, Richard's mum and dad and, and my mum and dad are swapping notes and now our negotiations were developing with Leeds. Leeds were very aggressive with Richard uh, and also very aggressive with myself. At that time, Sean Edwards, who, who we became good friends during the England period, uh, was being chased by Wigan. And I remember Sean was, I think Sean's about three weeks younger than me and Richard's two weeks younger. So Sean Edwards was the first first of these of us three to to sign professional and I remember getting up one morning and Sean Edwards is on GMTV uh, the cameras are in his house and it's a world record sign in Sean Edwards signs for Wigan um, so he he was almost the trailblazer for the the elite young 17 year old schoolboy signing professional forms um, two weeks after Richard went and signed for Leeds and then a week after that, 
two weeks after that. Uh, Leeds Rhinos are, are at my house again and just saying, right, basically, we want you to come and join Leeds. And so we listened to what they had to say. And then um, Arthur Bunting, Roy Warby, Peter Darley, and Steve Evans' father, who was a scout at, at, in and around the, the area for Hull FC, came to my house and they sat down and spoke about what the club could could do for me as a player. Um, it's one of the times when my, da- my dad really stood up to the mark and made s- some really good comments and some really good, um, I suppose, decisions during that period. He guided me extremely well. And one of the things that we always referred back to was when we looked at the Leeds side, it was full of internationals who were re- truly great internationals. I think Mark Conway may, may have been the only one that had, had come through the ranks there. And David Kreese, sorry. And I remember the LFC t- team at that at that stage had a, a couple of young blokes in there, maybe two years older than me. There was there was Schofield, Gary Devorte, Neil Puckering, Tony Collinson had been given an opportunity. Wayne Proctor was in there. The 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 list just was ridiculous. The number of opportunities that LFC had given these young players, and they grasped it. I'm oh, sorry, Andy Danner as well. And it was it was a that was the deciding factor for me, really. It wasn't about money. Um, so I remember Arthur and, and uh, Roy Warby leaving the big limousine parked outside. And believe it or not, Richard Agar's playing football in the street. Richard's <laughs> only a young lad then and big big mates with my younger brothers. And Richard always tells a story about when uh, Roy came in his big limousine and Peter Darley and there were all rumours flying around that I was going to go to Hull. It made the Sunday people the, the next day, Hull Chase Boy Star. So can you imagine what it's like at 16, all this? Oh. all this? And then Leeds Rhinos got back in touch. They came and passed my dad a checkbook and just said, fill in your numbers, put put in whatever you want. Uh, he's the one that, that we really want. So it was it was about either money or it was about, the feel for the club and I made a couple of bad decisions in my life based on on financial more than uh, opportunity and development and uh, this time I, I made a real smart decision I made a decision that it wasn't about the money um, I signed for Hull FC and it was the best decision I probably have ever made. Well, you, you talk about the times which which there were at that time obviously the minor striking uh, and whatnot I'm sure money would have come in handy at that moment in time, John. So was that was that quite a hard decision to make, and was there, was the pressure from from the family to go to the money? Well, I had, I, I got a fantastic deal anyway at Hull FC. By the way, it was a <laughs> it was on par with Sean Edwards, shall we say? So it, it was there was no hardship there, but it was it was very much about my parents stood by me and and supported me in every decision I made ultimately I was the one that was going to be wearing that but at that time the the minor strike went for a year and I couldn't drive so it, it worked out brilliantly because my dad then drove me to training four times a week watched me train four times a week over at Hull FC and we had chats coming back about how training went um, and about you know where we thought the game was going where we thought my chances were going so that 12 months of the minor strike, it allowed my dad to come across, make good friends with some really good people. And 
one of the things I'll, I will always remember, I'll never ever forget the people and the support that my family got through bags of shopping and tins of beans and you know Jim Easter. I don't know if you remember the the, the lads who played in the Colts then and uh, Jim used to fetch a bag of shopping for tail us through that difficult time. And I'll never ever I'll never forget that. No, that's that's fantastic. What was your first impressions of training then, John? Training alongside these, you know, internationals, but it really developed your game at that time. I think first of all, I I was I'm a I'm a rugby league fan, and all of a sudden you turn up to training and you sat getting changed next to Steve Norton, and you're looking across and there's Dave Topless there getting ready, and and Peter Sterling's also there at, at this time. Um, so it was it was very intimidating. I have to say it was very intimidating. It was it was a bit nerve wracking as well. And I found um, I had to grow up quickly. I had to develop quickly. It was a it was a man's man environment. It was a tough environment, and the the uh, there was no quarter given. Definitely no quarter given. I, re- I remember my debut. At, we were playing Lee at Boulevard, and I'd seen a little short side opportunity and. Still, almost have seen the same thing as me at the same time, and he, he skirted around the back of the play of the ball. We're about 15 metres out from the league, league goal line, and still, I've jumped down a short side. I've gone with him, and then I've looked up, and there's probably three or four Lee defenders stood in front of me, all big bruises. And I thought, and I never turned up for him, I just backed out of the play, and still, got clattered. He got up and played the ball and gave me the biggest gobful I've probably ever had on the field. And I still recall it. I, I'm sure my bottom lip quivered when after he <laughs> I thought, I'm 17 years old, Peter. Can't you just go easy on me? But if you were going to be in that team, you had to be good and you had to, you know, you had to aim up and, and finish the plays. If you called a play, you needed to get through it. And the guys there certainly made you all accountable. I, I, I dare say that. Similar to when we had Steve McNamara on um, towards the end of last year and he told us about how um, being dropped for the 91 Premiership final was effectively the making of him. I would imagine that something like that, John, in that moment, being given a save by Stelo, actually helped you no end. You can't can't put a price on it. You cannot put a price on it. You, You can... You can watch as much footage as you want. You can go through so many training hours and, and try to perfect your skills. But there's nothing like an iconic player giving you a serve and a gobful. And, and understanding that he felt comfortable to do that as well. It was almost an acceptance as opposed to, well, he's a young kid and it's only his first, he's on, he's on debut and I'll go easy with him. It's Once you walk across that whitewash, you're accountable for your for your place and, you, and you've got to do your job and after that that's been my mantra all the way through whether whether I've I've been part of a team I've often said you've got to do your job and certainly as a as a coach do your job's something that uh, it's it's really pivotal for me I think when people do the job and they all execute like they should then you shouldn't be far away yeah I just want to know how that team develops then John like obviously you got the got to the, the premiership final in 89 which you unfortunately lost and then you backed it up in 91 during those early years of, of your career how how did the team develop around you and how did you develop as a player it's a good question Joe and it's something I I presented to 
my other team, my team that I work with now and in a leadership group in format, um, I gave I gave a presentation about um, high performance teams, and had a couple of pictures. One one, for, one was from the Premiership final in '91, celebrating. One was in the Old Trafford dressing rooms with the St Helens guys in 2002 with a with a trophy and a couple of pictures of of me being away in Penrith and also in San Francisco 49ers. So I spoke about that, but I spoke more at length about some of the challenges that that had presented during the tough times. So I'd been through a couple of phases. I'd gone through a really good phase where at 17, I'd played nine games in a championship winning team. At 18, they moved Steve Norton from loose forward to second row to accommodate me at 13. And I played in a challenge in the Yorkshire Cup final at 18 and played in some really, really good uh, teams with the the likes of O'Hara, Lulai, Kemble, Arkoy, Sterling and Muggleton, uh, Skerritt, Crooks, Norton. The list, the list went on. And it was almost, I don't know if it, it, it didn't, clearly it didn't happen overnight, but things didn't go as well as what the club had probably planned. And Arthur left. And then there was choppy waters for a, a long time with... Um, regards to coaching and and some stability around the place and the the results didn't go as well as as the club had hoped and around that time it was a really tough time but I always remember the boys being really really positive with each other really good group of blokes who all put into for each other but technically we just weren't great we we loved one another we spent time with each other we'd like to to socialize with one another but we were just not there was just some bits missing and then in in '89, that 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 bit, that piece in the jigsaw that we really needed arrived in Brian Smith, and the technical aspects of the of the uh, of the team were brought together. So we got we got a good culture, we got a good group of blokes. They all worked hard. We probably weren't as smart as what we could have been or should have been, but when Brian came in, he just added a, a different dimension to. To, um, to how we played and how we thought as well, how we thought about the game. And I'm sure Steve Mack would have said about the number of coaches that have now gone through Brian, Brian Smith's tutelage from myself and Mack right through to the latest coaches that are doing really well in, in Super League and, and NRL. So Brian had a really important and massive influence on my career. You know, I wouldn't be talking now about coaching and about leadership if it wasn't if it wasn't for Brian back in 89. Can you give us an example of that then John what what did he identify in your game which maybe no other coach had even considered? Well if I talk about the team the team I, I remember as plain as day every time we got beat under the previous coaches the solution to getting beat was get your trainers on you run up to Rumba Bridge and back so it was five miles there and five miles back. And I remember this particular coach, He, um, we'd had a heavy defeat. So not only did we do the 10 mile run up to Umber Bridge and back on a Tuesday, we did it again on a Thursday. So that week we got beat again. And during a review, a quick review as, as well, not much detail to it. Uh, I didn't support the, there was a clean break and I didn't support the player who broke through and and I was asked during the meeting, I had the finger pointed at me and said, why weren't you in support? 
I said I was saving myself for that 10 mile run on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so so during that tough period, we a man came along with technical knowledge and understanding and attention to detail. So his first training session, I think we got beat by Castleford, and but we'd only just got pipped. And I'd already got my trainers on. I was ready to run up to Umber Bridge. And he came in, got some clips together, absolutely footage of the game which game vision was very unusual then but we we had lots of footage to go through lots of clips and then i probably said to brian uh, right i'm going on the run now and he said oh no we're going to go out we're going to solve this as we're going to show you what you've done well and what you could have done better and i think you guys and stats people will be able to correct me if i'm wrong but i think we lost our first four games but they were really really tight scores and you could see that we're getting better and better. And even, I think there was a game at Castleford where we lost narrow, narrowly. I just felt during the game, it was like almost like a, it just clicked. It just clicked. And even though we'd we'd been be, been getting beat, Brian's mantra and, and Tony's belief as well, Tony Smith, his brother's belief was, this is about performance. It's not about results. The scoreboard will look after itself. We just focused on on how we played, picked out the good things, worked on the things that we didn't do well. Didn't do much individual coaching at that time because he was new in and correctly he's tried to solve and, and get the team pointing in the right direction, put systems in place, put processes in place, and then as we kept as we went along, the belief in the team just grew, and getting to the final in '89 was a reward really for everyone, for a, a reward for the club, for the directors. In being brave in appointing a young 36-year-old, well, coach from James Cook High School in Sydney, so it it it, it was rewards for them. I thought we did well. I thought it was a good experience for us, and it it comes back to that old adage: you sometimes you have to lose one to win one. And the next time we went in '91, it was a different proposition altogether. It was it wasn't a day out. It wasn't a group of blokes who were glad to be there. We, we became an hard-nosed team and we were used to winning. We spent time at the top of the division. We were beating teams regularly. We were we were, we were really focused. I know there were rumours uh, about Witness not being a happy camp. and In particular, I think Doug Lawton, there's rumours about Doug Lawton leaving. But because we were so hard-nosed and so focused and went, went there to get a job done, we didn't get distracted by it. We could quite ev- easily have thought we just need to turn up here, but we were... We're very resolute, very focused, business-like. When you watch footage of us coming out of the tunnel, we didn't look like a group of blokes who were happy to be there. We looked like a, a group of blokes who've got a job to do. I think that's that's really important what you just said there, John, because I, from a fan's perspective, and, and you can understand why, they see results. You know, they, they measure their team success by results. And what you've just talked about there is is the... The building of a team, the, the actual, those incremental steps that Brian took you all on when he, when he came in, in relation to looking at you as individuals, bringing the technical aspect to training, and he started to build to something. And it got you to there. Obviously, you, you had that experience in 89, and it got you back to, 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 to I suppose, be able to redeem yourself in 91 in, in that final. And, and I think... That is something that goes unnoticed a lot of the times in sport. From a fan's perspective, I'm talking. People who are involved in it, 
notice it and, and, and see it. So um, the disappointing thing, I guess, is that from 91, it never kicked on. Do you, do you agree with that? And, and, and if so, what, what were the reasons behind it, do you think? Mm, I think, first of all, I need to give credit to Noel Clail, to Crusher, who took the team to the final in 91, got absolutely set up, ready to go. It was almost, it was a perfect storm, really. Brian being in charge, instilling technicalities into us. The recruitment was really good. There was, there was a camaraderie. There was, there was uh, a confidence about us. Um, and then Brian was was offered a job at St George, and we were top of the league at the time. I remember speaking to him, and he just said it's an opportunity I can't I can't turn down. It's it's my boyhood team. It's a chance to coach NRL, and we fully supported him. But the reaction from the team was also we need to get together and talk about how we're going to deal with this and where we're going to get with this. And the the board decided to appoint Crusher. Um, and the boys backed him 100%. He was a, he was an unbelievable player and a fantastic bloke, a great character, funny, funny man. And he just he kept the thing ticking along, lightened things up a little bit. Brian is very, very intense, and Crusher, Crusher just pulled that back a little bit. Certainly game day in, in a final, it, the, the occasion's big enough um, without having to put motivational videos out and try and build things up to be, you know, it's life defining. I think Crusher just played a blinder there and, and did a really good job with us. And I sometimes think that that, that performance and that win, sometimes Crusher's performance and, and his coaching in that game gets overlooked. So I think that's, that was a, it was, I suppose it was a, it was a time following the final where, we should have built and we should have got on and we should have kicked on. And um, I remember being approached by Halifax uh, with Malcolm Reilly and uh, Alan Agar in charge at Halifax. And I wanted to stay where I was. Um, I spoke to Carl Harrison about it. There was some interest from, from Halifax. He eventually left. And then the, the team just seemed to fragment. There was, there was in-house fighting, I think, between the coach and the board as well, which... It, as a playing group, we had no real, we had no real go-to person, no real person or uh, group of people that were the holding the team together, and we fragmented. We fragmented. We 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 lost our way through a lack of leadership, and I know people have been critical of of the board at that at that time as well about not investing in in players. I'm not sure about that. I'm, I don't know. You know the details behind that. You may well have to ask the people that at that time. But I know the board were a group, good group of people after that in '91 and, and beyond. That there were some really good people that did the very best. You know, David Kirkwood in particular was an outstanding man and um, was around in in '91, obviously. But um, it was just a tough time after that. I think there was just a, a fragmented team. But you got your your testimonial uh, year at, at Hull FC, John, and that must have been a proud moment for you and your family yeah absolutely it was i had no intentions of of leaving hull i was i was i was happy there i had a good group of people i made some good friends and we had a a group of blokes who all pulled in the same direction around that time i think paul eastwood had just had his testimonial then andy dannett followed him and then i followed in 
well, 11 years later, I think it was by the time it was, it was my turn for the testimonial. And it was just an opportunity just to share and celebrate with the fans. Um, fant- 10, 11 fantastic years. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, it was it ended up being nine months. We didn't actually go right through to the end of the year because eventually I were to leave. But um, it was a, an opportunity that I enjoyed and shared with the fans. So how did it? Naturally, how did it how did it sort of come to its end then, John? What you know, what was the the NT fairy tale with LFC? Um, I think it's the fact that both teams were were relegated and Featherstone were were uh, on my doorstep. I know I, my my time had come. I'd played eleven years. I'd trained really hard. I pushed myself and pushed my body to the very limits. I knew that I wanted to finish at, at Featherstone. I knew that I wanted to play a couple of years for my hometown club and. Um, I've got no regrets there. It was very different. It was de- very different, Craig. It was. I'd left a team and a, and a culture that was very hard-nosed, very results-driven. And I went into Featherstone and worked with David Ward and had a brilliant time working with the guys like Roy Powell, God bless him, and Derek Fox and Steve Malloy, Richard Gunn again. So catching up with some old mates, it was good to finish off of that final swan song at Featherstone. But... You know, it was just never the same. It was never the same. The, the the culture was very different, but still a really good group of blokes and and a great coach who I absolutely loved. Did you feel more or less pressured with it being your, your hometown club to, I suppose, to to maintain the standards that you set yourself throughout your career at Hull FC, John? Um, I think that's standards across the board, irrespective of what you do. If I wash the car, I've got to wash it as best I can possibly wash it. If I cut the grass, whatever I try and do, then it, it's got to be the best I can be. And it, it was the same at, at Featherstone. It, 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 the reality really hit home for me whilst we were in pre-season training and running around the track at Thorns Park. And for 10 years, I'd probably be in the top four. And and this particular season, my last pre-season, I was in the bottom four. And I just thought, this is... This is not where I want to be. If I can't do myself justice, then I need to hang up my boots. And I'd always wanted to coach, always wanted to coach. I'd got all my coaching qualifications at 23. So I'd, I'd done my uh, all my badges. I was keen on coaching. Um, you know, 23, why, why 23? Well, it was a time when Brian Smith came in 21, when I was tw- uh, 21 and I got the coaching bug off Brian and the attention to detail from Brian. And I wanted to, I could see the enjoyment that he got out of coaching. And I was really looking forward to actually retiring at 30 and getting my teeth into coaching. And I was able to do that at Featherstone. Um, David Ward gave me the opportunity to coach Featherstone's academy team. And uh, I really enjoyed that, got lots out of it. And I, I hope the team got lots out of it as well. We had, but guys like Jamie Rooney, um, who went on to be a really good player, Carl Pratt, who did did really well, Stuart Dickens, who also had a really good career. And the pleasing thing, the year before, the they were on the verge of relegation, and then the year after, we we beat Warrington, who was full of um, full timers, in a Challenge Cup final. So a group of Featherstone youngsters went and did really well then, and. I really got the coaching bug and thought I might be able to do this for a little while longer. 
And is that where Huddersfield, you know, had the seen your coaching ability at Featherstone and, and wanted you to to move to them? Is that is that right? Is that the the right process from there? Yeah, uh, I was actually I was actually coaching and working at Featherstone when uh, Featherstone played Wakefield in in the uh, final to get into Super League, um, and Wakefield beat Featherstone and went up. And Andy Kelly, the coach at the time, rang me up and had seen some of the things I'd been doing with the Featherston uh, younger players. And he offered me a full-time job at Wakefield. So in in 2000, uh, I went to Wakefield and, as Andy Kelly's assistant coach, where they were different times, Wakefield. Jeez, that was, <laughs> especially that second year. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that, that first year we, we were... There's a lot of talk about us not winning a game all year and we ended up winning about 10 games and finishing eighth. We had a really good year and I don't know if you remember the game, we, we beat St. Helens on, on TV on, on TV at Oakwell, the Barnsley ground. And that was the highlight of that year. And then the following year, someone waved a magic checkbook and magic being it disappeared and we didn't have any money actually. <laughs> and uh, we brought in the, the likes of Steve McNamara yeah, well, yeah. Steve actually talked about that time, and and maybe there were some false promises, and he promised promises that were made to to him and and the players, which didn't get fulfilled. He said oh. it wasn't like maybe a fond time to to remember. Mm-hmm. I know Steve's phrase at the minute. You're going to have to bleep this out, or I might not say it. But Steve had just left Bradford and said, "I've gone from penthouse to did it, did it." But yeah. Uh, I remember it was it was such a bizarre time. I walked into the coach's office and Andy Kelly's on the phone and he's ushering me. Sh- he's on the phone to Joan Alomo's agent. And I'll not say the numbers that were offered to Joan Alomo, but I'm sat there and I'm thinking, this is not right. He's winding me up. And I actually grabbed the phone off of him just to, uh, there's, there is someone at the other end of the phone. But at that time we'd signed... Uh, Franny Maloney, uh, Precky, Steve Mack, Tony Kemp, um, there was Gary Price, Tony, and there was t- it was a, a team that you know should have done really really well for itself. But comes back to the culture bit. There was no culture. There was no there was no environment where there was standards. There was no we were all brought together because of the money. It was, it was, that was a driving force, not success and not wanting to be the best team. So two years passed, um, I moved on. Um, I remember leaving, leaving uh, the ground at Wakefield with my head held high because I'd supported Andy Kelly all the way through it. Never went behind his back, walked out with him. And as I'm driving home, which is only 20 minutes away, I get a phone call before I get home. And it's David Ward, my old Featherston coach saying, I want you to be uh, the head coach at Batley. So I went to see Batley and uh, Kevin Nicholas there. I'd had a look around Batley and listened to what the plans they got and thought, this is a little diamond. This is an unbelievable opportunity for a young coach, his first head coach's job. So I went to Batley and I'd, I'd, I'd been there for, uh, it must have only been four or five games. Tony Smith, Brian's brother got the Huddersfield Giants job. Yeah. Tony rang me up and said, is there any chance of meeting up for a coffee? He came to my house. We had a discussion about coaching and he said, 
Brian's giving me lots and lots of earache. He said, you need Sharpie in there. You need Sharpie in there. So we eventually agreed to to part ways at Batley. I did some 50-50 coaching, worked with Batley on a night, Huddersfield Giants during the day for a couple of months until there was a smooth trans- transition over. And then I got to work with Tony. Uh, and it was like going back to school again. It was it was like being back to 1989. Um, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant education. We had a tiny little coach's office at Huddersfield and he'd shut the door and he'd sit there and I'd come out with uh, sweat running down my back. It absolutely gave me a real good insight into how to coach. Attention to detail was brilliant. Did Did Tony get all that from Brian then, do you think, John? Is, is that where it came from? Or are they both sort of gone through a similar learning experience themselves when they, when they were younger? I mean, I, I suppose the, the golden question is, how did Brian become so knowledgeable about it all? Mm. Well... To answer that question, I was asked to apply for the Featherstone job um, when I was when I just finished uh, playing, and I I rang Brian up. I said, Brian, I'm green as grass here. I've done 12 months with the academy. Um, how am I going to learn? When you become a head coach, everybody keeps the cards close to the chest. No one shares. How am I going to learn? He said, You need to read. You need to read. And he said, You need to read on all sports, on business, you need to absorb as much information as you can because that's where you'll get your and you'll that's where you'll get your new information from, the cutting edge information, the the creating cultures, read about uh, NFL for example. And it was very much that. I think Brian was heavily well, I know Brian was heavily influenced by the NFL as as I have been, uh, as well as business. So it was it was a it was certainly, I think, Brian influenced by NFL. Tony, very, very similar to Brian. Different characters, different types of people, but both technical, both intelligent men, both well-read. Um, attention to detail was very, very similar. Um, Brian had a, had a different point of view than, than Tony, but I suppose when Brian comes along, it, there's a blank canvas. And then when Tony, when Tony comes along, there's that blank canvas has got a bit of paint on it because mm. of the experience of working with Brian and getting to work with Tony was, was also an education and an upskilling that was something I knew would, would stand me in good stead for the rest of my coaching career. And, and then how daunting was it when obviously Tony Smith then moved to Leeds, got the Leeds job and you got the call that you, you know, you're going to take the reins and, was that was that daunting that you had you know quite a lot big boots to fill, John? Or was you confident in yourself that you was that you was ready for for this head coach's role? Joe, I'd, I'd had a really good apprenticeship, and when I when I played, I, I played like a coach. I thought like a coach in team meetings, in my testimonial brochure that I think I've got about five thousand left. If anybody's interested, that's <laughs> I've got a garage full. <laughs> but joking aside, yeah, it's. Uh, I had a mindset and thought like a coach came to Brian with lots of thoughts and ideas on different types of plays and moves and scrum plays. And um, so I'd already, I'd, I'd already got that mindset as a player that I wanted to coach and I thought like, and played like a coach. And then after, uh, after Batley and Huddersfield, this was a real good, real again, learning from adversity. We'd lost our first 15 games. 
But it's unbelievable. You look back and the coaching that was happening at that time at Huddersfield was absolutely amazing. Really good coach. In the second half of the year, we finished off really well, but we ended up getting relegated. So when people, when you get relegated, heads roll. And I felt vulnerable at that time. But lo and behold, I got a phone call from Ian Millward at St. Helens. And he asked me to come along for an interview to talk about an assistant coach's role. So I went to see Ian. He asked me about the technicalities of the game and what I thought to St. Helens team. I'd already done my homework on them and said, well, you, you suffer, you're, scored, you're conceding too many tries from kicks because you're not defending kicks well enough. You're not kick pressuring well enough. Your position of your fullback's not quite right and your winger's too shallow and it could be a bit deeper. So I'd gone through all that in the detail with him and eventually I got the job and had two years. Two of the, the, the greatest years I ever had was, was coaching at St. Helens. A um, couple of Challenge Cup finals, won a grand final, played in a world club. It was absolutely a privilege to coach the likes of, well, there's too many of them, but Long, Sculthorpe, Cunningham, Joint, No Love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that upskilling of, of working with Ian on, on, a, on a regular basis, on attack in particular, Ian was a great, great attacking coach, had a great mindset for breaking teams down. And I was very much a defensive-minded coach. I enjoyed that physical aspect to the game. So... I got the best of both worlds and I had complete autonomy on the team. So I had a really good opportunity to probably practice practice being a head coach with someone else's team. And then when uh, Ralph Rimmer, the chief executive of Huddersfield, came back, I think they'd already had their plan that I'd done my, my, my apprenticeship with Tony. They were in the second division. I'd had two years at, at Huddersfield. Smithy left to go to Leeds, and then I stepped straight back in following Smithy, and who was a great coach, a really, really good coach. But the team had not as been as successful as as probably what it could have and should have been. So I went back in there, knowing I was following a good coach, but also knowing I think I could have improved them as well, and had had a little bit of a stamp in there from my days at St. Helens and the experience as a player. Was it a good squad that you that you inherited then, John? Was it? Or did you have to work a lot on them to to improve them? Obviously, you got to the first ever Challenge Cup final at Huddersfield during during your time during your time there. So obviously, you, you developed them. And what were what were the the key aspects which you worked on them on or with? That's probably the better word. Yeah, the um, I knew that I knew they were going to be a smart team. I knew that they were going to be highly coached. I knew that they they believed in performance. I knew that they'd be well trained and there wouldn't be that much to to try and influence. You know, the key things on cultures are really difficult and it can take a long time. Whereas Smithy had done a really good job with them, got them ready, um, but they were just they were just I don't know languished. I don't know. I think they finished tenth or eighth, something like that, the, the year I got there. And I know I got a good coach to follow, but I also knew how we coach, so I knew the language was very similar. Um, but my first off-season, I moved 15 players out and brought eight in because I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to make it to be, make it my team. And then within 12 months, we got to a Challenge Cup semi-final first. And then we had the ice place finish. A year after, we got to um, a cup final um, in 2006. Did a really good job in the semi-final against Leeds Rhinos, actually. 
uh, that's probably the best best piece of uh, play I've seen from one of my teams, certainly in a semi-final against a really good lead side at Odsell. Uh, we were written off. We hadn't got much chance. We'd, we'd played Leeds earlier, actually, and um, we got beat. And some comments afterwards uh, coming out of the Leeds camp was that it was men against boys. So there was a bit of fuel to the fire there when we actually drew them in the semi-final. And uh, I think the chairman, Ken Davies, his words afterwards in his interview said that it certainly wasn't men against boys today, was it? So that was a great, great, great performance for us in the semi-final. Then got to the final and we we gave it a good crack. Gave it a good crack. Um, bit nervous, a bit just happy to be there, I thought. I look mm. back, I look back at... Some teams I've played in and coached in the past that would see some of the boys walking around filming the stadium and having the pictures taken. Um, some guys really, really nervous before the game. Emotional energy just absolutely chewed it up. And we got some great athletes at half time. I looked at them and I thought, these guys are gone. These guys are gone. And in the opposite, in the other dressing room, you got the likes of Long and Schoolthorpe and the players of that ilk just been there, done that. No, it's an 80-minute game and just turn the screw in the end. But a good a good opportunity for us. Great for the club. Thought it was a bit of a springboard for the following year, or we believed it to be a springboard for the following year and and, and what was to come in in the years after that. Is there, you say that you, obviously your players were nervous. Is is there something that you, that you tried to do or something looking back which you thought, you could do try and get rid of those nets. Is is that something a coach can do, or is it just down to the individual player? I think it's it's both. You as a coach, you have to have a, an understanding and a feel for your players, um, and how they are, their habits. You've got to know them intimately. You've got to realise how and what makes them tick. How you how you get your top line players to be in their in their headspace where they're ready to go. There's a, there's a stress performance graph and it, 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 it talks about your stress levels are good when you can control them for an exerted amount of time. It influences your performance. So if your stress levels are too low, you're almost in a, in a bored type state. And we're out with our boys in that final. It was very much about this is the biggest game of their lives. There's no one who played in a final. My greatest challenge was trying to downplay it. Uh, talked about well, there's no pressure on us. Almost used a template from the Leeds Rhino semi-final victory where I went out in the press and said as soon as the draw was came came out, I came out in the press and said there's no pressure on us. All the pressure's on Leeds. And we tried to use that coaching template again in the final, but it was just um, probably the occasion was a, 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 a challenge for us. Plus. St. Helens team played great. I know John Wilkin was outstanding that day. I can't. I don't know if you remember with his strap nose and blood. Yeah, everything. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was good. It was good for us. It, it, it was a, it was great for the chairman. Really pleased for the chairman and for the fans. I think. I mean, obviously, the result are sad as we're recording this, and we can see into uh, John's environment a little bit. We can see a plethora of shirts behind you, and you, you've got what looks like to be a a split shirt with St. Helens and Huddersfield there. John, what, what, what's the story behind that? Yeah, it's, um, it's uh, like you say, there's, it's a, 
it's a shirt that's been stitched together. There's half of it is St. Helens with all the Saints signatures on, and on the other half is is uh, the Huddersfield Giants signatures. It's I've got to admit it's not my it wasn't my idea, but Daniel Anderson, the the St. Helens coach at the at the time, rang me and suggested that we we swap shirts, get each set of players to sign half a shirt, and then we stitched it together, and it's it's come out really well. It's a pity you you can't really see it, but um, yeah, it's it's a Certainly a, a unique memento. Am I right in thinking that 2006 will that be one of the the highest moments of your career as a coach, John? Would it, that be fair it, in saying? Oh, it'd be up there. It's it certainly would. There's uh, there's one of, there's one or two really. There's there's you know the following year was a was a big one. 2007. Uh, talk about backs to the wall. Um, we'd we'd been. Uh, expectancy had shifted when you start to have some success expectancy shifts and certainly that's your I suppose that's your job as a coach to try and influence your board members to believe in your team and get your fans to get behind the team because there's a level of expectancy that's gone from hoping to stay in the division to now being competitive and being in finals so the 2007 season we were full of hope we were really excited about the, the year coming up and it couldn't have got it couldn't got off to a worse start. We we lost our first seven games, played seven, lost seven. Uh, the knives were out for me. Were the performances bad, or was it just one of those things where he just couldn't get over the line? Joe, you you know your stuff. You've done your research. <laughs> if, if you'd look back at those seven games, and we lost all seven by six points or less, and we played the top six sides. So the way the fixture list went back then, because we'd, we'd finished in seventh, we played all the top six sides the first up, the opening five or six games of the season. So we had a really good, a really difficult start to the season, but we we were playing well, but just getting pipped. And we hung in there. I remember, uh, I hope he forgives me for saying this, but I, I'd, had, I'd had the word. Uh, from the chairman, uh, things need to improve, John. And I, I understood that as well. You know, I'd had, I'd had a couple of years of success, and we'd had seven seven games uh, where the the sharks were circling. Press conferences on a Wednesday, you couldn't buy a ticket. They were absolutely, it was absolutely full by the by game five, six, and seven. We had lots of people I'd never seen before saying, "John, you're under pressure. You must be worried about your future." And I always come back to um, a situation that I went through as a as a young lad, and that was uh, in 1984 on the minor strike. My dad was on strike for 12 months, um, had no money coming in. My mum was a dinner lady on 26 quid. She got three lads and a mortgage to pay for, and we got nothing, absolutely nothing. I remember on, and I'll share this with you. I remember on on Christmas Day, my mum sat there crying because there was no presents for the three lads. We we got nothing. And I recited the story to the p- people in the in the press conference and said, seven losses, do you think that that's pressure? I'll tell you what pressure is, going through a minor strike, living on 26 pounds a, a week, That that's tough. This is absolutely nothing, nothing. And that gave me the resilience, gave me the inner strength and the and the determination to battle through it. And we went on to win our next nine games straight, nine out of nine, best run that they'd been on probably ever. Uh, 
went to the Super League uh, Man of Steel Awards. I think Daniel Anderson picked me for Coach of the Year. So, you know, that would be up there as a as a real high point about not just it's not always about winning things. Winning things and trophies are great, and ultimately, it, I don't think it's a judge of a of how good a coach has done his job. I think it's very much about changing people, changing cultures, changing teams, and having a, a sustained impact upon a group of people, which which we did. We we were a good group of blokes for a, a long time, and when I when I did finish, there was. A continuity there. I got two assistant coaches who were well trained in Paul Anderson and, and Kieran Pertle. They took over, and then Daniel uh, Nathan Brown came in and did really well. Spent a bit more money, and the club went on. Uh, which, for me, it's a sign of a good culture and a good organisation, and they're still doing well to this day, which I'm, I'm pleased about. Six more tackles is cool. There it is. There's the six again buzzer. Craig, fire away. Okay, John, question number one. Finish the lyrics to this famous Boulevard song. Johnny Sharp, Johnny Sharp, Johnny, Johnny Sharp. He's got no hair, but we don't care. Johnny, Johnny Sharp. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for that. The, uh, it's actually on Wikipedia, is it, as well? I think uh, the song's out, out there as well, so awesome. <laughs> uh, question number two. Who's the best player you've ever coached? Paul Sculthorpe, um, closely followed by probably Kieran Cunningham. Scully was the the prototype, the ultimate player. His his physique, his frame, his attitude. He was uh, a pleasure to coach. Question number three. <laughs> Don't want to get you in trouble here. Who was oh, responsible for shaving Andy Dannett's and Steve Crook's eyebrows off in the end of season trip? To Benidorm in 1989. Well, it was it was cloak and dagger all week, wasn't it? There was, you know, Andy and, and Steve are, are not the best looking of men, are, are they really? So can you imagine those two guys walking around with no eyebrows? It's it's uh, it's not a good picture. But um, there was rumours flying around. I think I was under pressure at one stage with it, but um, we. Uh, we wondered and we, we questioned all week until the very end where we were on our way home and the bus was coming back from the airport and drop, dropping people off. The West Riding lads were getting off and, and as the bull pus, uh, pulled away from Leeds, Tim Tim Wilby who got off the bus just shouted back down the bus, it was me lads and did a runner. So <laughs> Dannett and Crooks who were absolutely fuming, they were ready for killing him. Uh, uh, question number four. Who's the best coach you played under? Um, it's Brian Smith, with without shadow of a doubt. I thought Brian was really good, but I think Royce Simmons deserves a mention. Royce was absolutely outstanding. He Royce did some really good things with it. A difficult time for the club. I think the money money was tight. Um, we all know about his his marathon run. I think they did all five marathon in, marathons in five days and. I know some of the guys who joined him on that um, in particular, they said that he, he refused to put Vaseline on the insides of his legs when his legs were chafing. And then someone said that he wouldn't wear Lycra shorts underneath his shorts. And Keith Warner, the physio, did one of the marathons with him. And he actually said, I'm, I'm running behind Royce. It's probably marathon four. 
and there's actually blood running down his leg as the cuts were digging deeper in where his shorts were rubbing and his little fat legs were chafing. (laughs) (laughs) Question number five. Of all the referees you managed in your tenure with the RFL, which one of them do you think would have been most likely to have made it as a player? Chris Kendall. Chris Kendall. Um, He was actually in Uddersfield Giants Academy um, when I was when I was Huddersfield Giants head coach. Um, so Chris really quick, rapid in fact, got loads of good skill. Chris could have uh, Chris could have made it. Uh, Richard Silverwood, he, he he fancied his chances as well. He he was a decent player. Um, yeah, Ian Smith. Ian Smith absolutely loved himself when we played small-sided games. Absolutely rated himself. Um, but it was just a trier. <laughs> and last but last not least, question number six. Who would you say, or which teammate, had the biggest impact on you as a player? Oh, that's a oh, that's a tough one. Tough one. Um. You've got me here, haven't you? Um, I enjoyed playing alongside Steve McNamara. Um, he, um, he was, and he is a smart, smart man, not just on regards to rugby, but intelligent, intelligent person as well. Um, I loved playing with Greg Mackey. Greg was very influential, uh, tough kid roommate as well where we shared a room um, for the premiership final um but i would say david topless was was up there uh, sterling peter sterling i'd say was the, the biggest influence just for that rouse alone had a massive impact upon my career <laughs> Just before we probably move on to your you, you, you revisit probably to, to Hull, just behind you, you've got the uh, the Great Britain shirt, John. Tell us what those experiences were like in in Sydney and, and being part of that squad. Obviously, you know, during lockdown, I think Sky Sports did a revisit of, of, of that game in Sydney when, when we beat the, the Australians. What was it like to be a part of that experience and that tour? Oh, it was... It was a fairy tale, really. It was a culmination of a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice, um, and just being with a, a group of really good people as well. The coaching staff were great. Loved my time working there. Loved my time with Brian Noble and Dave Lyon and and the rest of the staff. The the I actually have a tough picture in my hallway that I look at every single day, and I see Terry Newton on there, and I see Rob Burr on there, and I see some really special people that um you know just made the tour really we we obviously we we weren't as successful as we would have liked to have been yeah but how do you measure success is it just about winning the games is it about group building a group of people that go can go on to other and, and better things and yeah we had, we had some challenges we had some challenges we certainly did and part of the uh, my life now is about talking about culture and about developing business cultures and um, talks about standards and behaviours and 
uh, on a couple of occasions during that tour, we had, we had a couple of blips, shall I say, that that really didn't constitute a high performance culture. And eventually, uh, everyone knows Sean Long left left the tour, um, which was a massive blow for us because he'd been really good. He'd been really good, and I'd worked with Longy week in and week out at, at St Helens in a in a really strong culture where people were held accountable and the players held themselves accountable and there was very high standards. And I, I think that once we'd gone to once we'd gone to Sydney and got into the the nuts and bolts of the of the of how we were going to play, we focused very much on technicalities, how we're going to defend, how we're going to tackle, how we're going to attack. And I just think the culture was left behind a little bit. We should have maybe maybe sat down again and talked about how we expect to be, behave and the standards that we're going to hold each other, other accountable to. But um, it was a it was a you know, roller coaster tour, really, but a great a great experience. You, you talk about culture and standards. I suppose from an outsider looking in, it, it, it's hard that you'd have to do that with top level professional elite elite athletes who have got to the pinnacle of their profession that you'd have to talk about standards I suppose is it just the case that they've got there they're a bit complacent they think that they, that they can do what they want because they are the best of the best or I suppose it the tour environment you could maybe shed some insight on that John I think that you know the culture whether it's whether it's about being on a rugby tour or whether it's in, in business you have some really good people working in your organization but it's 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 about it's about working together and pulling in the right direction. Culture is not all about standards and rules and, and codes of conduct. It's about how you train. It's about where you behave. It's about out on the field, how you respond when you're, when you're in adversity and you're behind the post and you, you've conceded a try in the first two minutes. How do you respond there? And I think that's where culture comes into it because you get a hard-nosed culture. Leeds Rhinos are a prime example of the sustained uh, success that they've had. It's been about a group of blokes who's been together for almost and probably more than 10 years, whereas we were clearly a, a, a team that was full of talent, some good players in there, but there were some excellent players that were not being used as well, which... Um, it's always difficult to manage when you've got your squad of 25 and the same 17 players every week. It, it's difficult for the guys like Wilkin and uh, the whole boys, uh, Rich, Richard Horn, um, Rob Burra. Oh, it was almost almost like a pre-season tour for them. They were, they were working really hard every day, but not getting an opportunity to to play, and that affects you know morale. Yeah. No. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that, John. Um, so I think we're, we're going to move on to your time at Hull and this time it was a kind of a, a different role you, you was football operations manager um, what what made you accept that um, and maybe can you kind of explain what, what that is and what that role was um, I always wanted to go back to Hull but obviously because of my love, love for the club um, it was a funny period I'd I'd had, actually, I'd had conversations with Noel Cleal and Des Hasler about going to Manly and coaching in uh, in the NRL at Manly uh, at that same time. 
and things were looking positive there when there was a, a political falling out between two owners of the club and there was no more recruitment, there was no one being brought in and things went quiet over there. Richard Agar gave me a ring and, and said, would I be interested in, in doing some work at Hull, which you know, obviously that's my club and I, would, I wanted to go back there. However, I, I didn't want to go back um, with all due respect to Richard as Richard's assistant. Um, I think I'd, I'd done enough to, and I wanted to head in a different direction anyway regarding, uh, I'd had five years as a head coach. I wanted to freshen up and use a little bit of my education away from the game um, to to develop into being, well, my goal was ultimately to be a chief executive or a director of rugby. So my plan was to go to Hull as a as a football operations guy, uh, basically overseeing development of young players. We created a jet system, uh, which is junior elite training system, where we brought the lights of, I don't know if you've heard of him, Josh Hodgson. Yeah, yeah. Just about, <laughs> Josh, yeah, I think so. Josh was part of that group and young Ben Crooks, a couple of other guys who were young elite players set that up and got that up and running um so that i got a lot of enjoyment out of that but uh the coaching side it went really well early on and but i just i found myself gravitating back to almost being an assistant coach again coaching defense and doing the things i'd done 10 years earlier and and it just didn't seem to fit for me in the end it, um i went well we went our separate ways which was probably the best best decision I'd, I'd no plans to go back on the tools I'd I'd been a head coach in Super League and a Great Britain coach for a long time and I'd had no plans and uh, to go back as an assistant uh, you know there was Andy Lass there who was a, a able young coach and spent a lot of time with Lasty um, mentoring Lasty spending a lot of time on on the technicalities of the game with him and, and which I got a lot of rewards from and it was all it was nice when the guys won the Challenge Cup, uh, Challenge Cup final uh, on the night of the final win. Last, he sent me a text saying, you know, it was uh, I'd been a big influence in his career and, and had a massive impact upon the team getting to the final. Oh, that's that's nice to hear that. You know, that's that's fantastic, John. And um, I wonder what we look back as fans and obviously look back at the ownership of you know Caff Everton and I think James Wall was there at the time. What was your relationship? Like with them, I, I got on well with both. Um, I've, I've been brought in to analyse and look at the coaching processes, and I, I gave my opinion um, and offered some support, and that was about as far as it got. So, so from from then on, then John, you, you kind of moved into the RFL side. I think was your first role as a, a technical advisor. Am I right in saying that? And kind of. Yeah, for, can you give us an in, insights for the list of what what did that entail and how did you fall upon that? I suppose. Yeah, it's it's it was it, it was a byproduct of myself and Brian Noble going to South Wales Crusaders. Yes. Um, we'd gone down there and we'd 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 gone down with the support of the RFL, saying that this is going to be a long term project. I went down there. I got myself a house in Cowbridge, which is a beautiful part of the world. It, I'd settled in there. My wife and my kids were coming down. <coughs> and um, then within 
I don't know, a month that said that there's no buyers more interested and they're they're going to shift the operation to Wrexham. So we went to Wrexham and it was mayhem, mayhem from start from the start really. And at, at that time I was, I've been in the game a long time and I just was a bit disenfranchised with how the game was being run. Um, there was a good opportunity down there that was missed in South Wales. Um, gone back up and we've gone from out the pan into the fire really with Wrexham. We we did really well with them, mate, got them to the playoffs and we'll just feel pipped us with a, a try in the last seconds, I think. And um, then we'd gone to... We gone to Hull FC, hadn't we? And Danny Tickle kicked a goal from the touchline to to That's pinch right. it from us, yeah, in a playoff game. So we'd done ever so well, but financial problems, the owners not being as honest as what they could have been, players not getting paid. Um, so eventually, eventually Ralph Rimmer and Nigel would approach me and ask me if I'd be interested in a new role that was going to be uh, created for supporting the technical and, and providing technical support to the match review panel which i thought was an interesting an interesting opportunity so i've done that for two years studying uh, and supporting blake solly who's now chief executive at south sydney um done that for two years and also helped stuart cummins with his coaching of of the referees and tried to shift it a little bit from what they were used to and how they were used to being trained um, brought a more of a, a technical element to it, a more rugby league specific element to it. Um, and then when Stuart finished, it was who was going to take the job. It's a job I didn't want, but there was no one else uh, at that time who they thought was going to be appropriate for it. So I took the job and did the job for two years. It was It was very, very different. I'll put it that way. It was very, very different to what I was used to. Um, I shifted things around, changed things, tried to create a, a very professional environment where blokes trained hard, uh, tried to coach them into skills, um, created scenarios for them as referees, actually put into, into them uh, situational coaching where they were actually out on a field and making decisions under fatigue. Um, and... I thought we were developing well. I thought we were making inroads, but it was just every week it was there was I was battling against uh, a tide of of coaches. If if your team won, you never heard a call from a referee uh, from a coach, uh, and if your team got beat, there was always there was always an, an unhappy coach at the end of the line, and I was quite happy to defend the the referees when they got the decisions right, but I was also and I am into being accountable when the decisions were wrong. So that was a tough one. I think for me that with that job, there was never any positive outcome. There was the, the ultimate, and I think we'll go on to this, but the ultimate was like at the end of a week, whew, that's another week, that's another week gone. And, I, and there was no outcome. Whereas as a player and as a coach, you're either won or you lost and you know what you were doing the week after. Whereas, with seven referees or six full-time referees, there was never a win. There was just no issues to come out of that game, and that was a win for them, and that just didn't inspire me at all. John, you, you're leading me straight into 
I've been burning to ask this question since since we started, but take us back. 2013, in charge of the referees, Magic Weekend, Derby game, Hull FC, Hull Kingston Rovers, Chris Green's try. Come on, tell us the story. No, I don't remember that, can you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was... It was uh, yeah, it, we, we had Steve Ganson in the in the in the box in the video room, and we were sat as coaches, myself and Ian Smith, in the in the one of the boxes at the stadium, and we had uh, we were wired up to every communication from the referee up to the video referee. We had the television screen up there, and it was an absolutely obvious decision. So he's looked at it. Steve Ganson's looked at it once. And he hasn't pressed offside. And he looked at it again and then again. And I found, well, we all in the room were screaming at the television. Chris Green's 10 yards offside. What the hell? So, Even as a fan, John, we've oh. kind of like turned round. Normally you, you, you celebrate because you think it's a try. We turn round, we're talking to our mates and you're just waiting for the, the no try signs to come up. It's, oh, yeah. Should be in my shoes, Joe. <laughs> so, it, and the mo, and, and the mo, and you'll get this with when you watch football and the VAR as well as there's a rugby and rugby union. The the more the look, your your judgment gets clouded. And we they've been trained. The guys have been trained. Usually, your first view is the correct view. And it was a time when this is not. He's going to get this wrong. He's going to get this wrong. And lo and behold. It got magic. It got magic history anyway, hadn't it? And it was always going to. It was always going to point to to this. So, good old Gams got that one wrong again. And within thirty seconds of the game finishing, bang, bang, bang on the on the box door where the coaches were sat and the referees were sat. There's Mayhem going on out there. Neil Udgell's absolutely fuming. He wants an apology from you, John. So I thought, from me, John, how have I done that? How have I got that one wrong? And Gans came in. He was as Steve Ganson came in. He was as pale as anything. He's, I thought he was going to have a heart attack, and he apologised and said that he'll he'll speak up on it on the behalf of the because he was director of coaching anyway. So he was in a, a responsible position to handle that. But I think at that time, well, Jill might have said something about. You know, this guy's been at Hull FC. We were never going to get a call like that. And I, I did the maths, and it was actually 16 years since I played at Hull FC. But you know what it's like with the black and whites and the red and whites. <laughs> the scars run deep, don't they? So, I don't think there could have been a worse game for that decision to actually oh, have been man. made in, could there? Right, absolutely butchered. But typical, I, you know, not just about the, the, the thing and what went wrong afterwards, I came to a decision during my time there that we'd have we'd have two coaches in the in the video box for that reason. So if uh, uh, you'd have a lead video referee and then you'd have a support. So if Ganson's going down the wrong avenue, you'd have a support to say, "Hang on a bit, on a bit, Ganson's a bloke ten yards offside upfield," uh, and the obvious decisions it eliminated. So that was uh, one of the legacies of of my time as a referee's boss. Did he ever give any inclination as to sort of 
why he just not seen Chris Green like sat in the front row behind the sticks as that ball was was in the air. He heard all FC one, Craig, because <laughs> it was the previous Magic Weekend where I don't know if it's Michael Dobson throws a, a ten yard forward pass. And unfortunately, he hadn't seen it. So I think he, he owed us one, John. Is that is that was that the explanation he gave? Well, they decided to give him the boss's job, didn't they? So read it, read into it what you will. <laughs> <laughs> but no. oh yeah, let's be serious. You know, referees have got a an unbelievably tough job, and everybody's got a an opinion on them. And for me, you know, they only get one look. You know, the on-field referee only get one look, and obviously the video refs there to support them and. Yeah, I, I've got every sympathy with with referees, and I think you know, I think as fans and 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 as stakeholders in the game, I think we've just got to accept that we're all human, we all make mistakes, and I think as soon as you accept that, you know, have a more stress, uh, less stress-free life. Easy for me to say. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think Joe just on that that they're the custodians of the game. Without the referees, there's no game, and they are genuinely honest blokes who are, who are trying to do the very best. They work hard. They have two games a week. Sometimes, you know, they'll referee on a Saturday and then the video referee Sunday or they may well referee Saturday and be a touch judge Sunday. They work extremely hard. The, the hours are long and they're a pre- in a pressurised environment. The game's becoming quicker and quicker. Um, we're wanting to push the game to become a, a fantastic spectacle. we we're looking at modifying the rules. We're trying to increase the rate of pace of the game. And uh, I pushed for a, a lot of innovation in the game during my two years as head um, head of the referees. One was the the referees camera, which, you know, we tried to give the, the fans a better view of that and how it, how it felt and how it looked like. And from that, we tried to work out some vision that we could use to coach the referees with at eye level as opposed to video ref uh, from the stands. Uh, we used the touch screen as well, which didn't really work out. I thought it was a bit too slow, a bit too clunky when we were working in partnership with uh, Neville Smith at, at Sky. We tried to get the video referee to fast forward and explain his decisions so it, it could help with the, with the, the fans' understanding of decisions. Um, so there's plenty of of innovation, plenty of hard work gone into those two years where we're trying to modify the game. But, you know, the, 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 in fact, we, we trialled at Bishop Burton, we trialled uh, two referees in a Warrington versus LFC Academy game. And it worked really well. And I'd, I'd hope that that's the way we were going to go. And I could see that the game and modifying the, the rules as we were. And uh, such fantastic athletes and how quick this game is. We're going to need two referees because of transitions from attack to defence are so quick. Unfortunately, we haven't got enough officials to do that. So uh, we're, we're, we're going with one. I know in Australia they're liking it at the minute, but it's when errors start to occur and injuries of referees doing all the mileage, the Ks that they're running. Uh, that'll put uh, great bearing and, and load on the referees physical, physically as well as mentally. John, I, I, think, I mean, we're... You know, we're we're an hour fifteen in now. I, th- I think we're we we've we could go on forever. Um, but I think before we just sort of draw this podcast to a close, just want to get your view on where the game's at at the moment. Where where do you think the game stands, and, and what do you think? Coronavirus aside, let let's pretend that that's that's all done and dusted now, and we're back in full swing of a season. Um, 
what where where do you think the game is and, and what do you think needs to happen for our sport rugby league to to grow to a a, a global sport i think the you know first and foremost um, i'm not i'm not a, i'm not a guy or an ex player that looks back on the game and says it was much better when i played um you know i'm not that type of person at all the, the spectacle of the game is absolutely outstanding the skills levels the the the, the way the the game is played and the attitude of the players is absolutely t- tremendous i like to refer back to bradford bulls and probably the, the era that steve mack played in and peter deakin when he was chief executive of bradford and Bullmania. i thought they set the benchmark for how our game should be i thought they set the benchmark for how how to market the game they work brilliantly with the media um fed the media every day constantly fed the media and i think we've gone away from that i think that that the money that was come from sky has gone into the players pockets a little bit too easily i think that i I think the players agree i agree that the players should be paid well but i think that initially i thought that we were going to drive it to be a global product we were going to we're going to have, I don't know, teams from Europe playing in Super League and it was going to be a vibrant sport where it was glitz and glamour and all jazz. And I think we've I think we've gone backwards. I do. I think the marketing of the game is not how it how it was. And I think the Stobart deal was a, a an horrendous decision that really knocked the game around. And when you're giving some, such a valuable product away, in one year just to publicize something the year after you've got zero to negotiate with when you go to other other organizations and want them to invest in in the, in the product so i think there's lots of good things on the field i think there's lots of good things with young players coming through i think what we're doing with the development's really good but i think the decision makers at the top need to be more ambitious think a little bit more about left field about recruiting people that and not rugby league people and we need to be comfortable with that because we can be an insular sport we can be you know the heartlands of the game is is a really a positive but the heartlands of the game is not looking after each other and you know we've got lots of clubs at the minute that are struggling and not investing and and you look at the quality of if you look back at the teams say 10 years ago even longer when you've got the Wiggins and the Saints and Widness and Bradford and Leeds and you look at and you benchmark those five six teams now and where they stand now compared to where the way they were before it it's you've got six strong teams and the other teams are really scrapping to for a piece of the cake and I think that they need some support they need some help I think Catalans have been a revelation I think that's been something that we should embrace um, being in a being a part of a uh, an ex experiment in Wales. I could see that there was lots and lots of positive to come out of that, and I thought it was thrown in the bin too. So, if we're gonna if we're gonna develop the game, I think that the RFL needs to buy a club. I think it needs to own a club. I think it needs to get to a stage over a two or three year period where they put their best people in, the best marketing, the best coaches in the best junior development people in there and they build that brand build that brand so in three years time 
a businessman or an organization may well be interested in investing in a place that's actually had some money spent on it and the and the and the uh, the basics the fundamentals are there i think that's yeah. where we need we need some leadership i think you think this is where your i know you mentioned it earlier on and we, we've not really talked about it your, your time with was it the san francisco 49ers but and and your admiration of the nfl what they do off field do you think this is where the rfl could learn an awful lot from yeah I th- absolutely i spent a couple of weeks at stanford university and with a uh, a guy called bill walsh uh, google bill walsh he's not with us anymore but he's the guy who who as one of the greatest innovators and probably one of the greatest coaches has ever been in any sport. And I was fortunate enough to spend uh, two weeks with Bill and he, uh, he was, he was very open in his thoughts on, on how the game in, in America and sport in America is sold. And I think we've lost that understanding that we're competing against an environment where there's lots of other good things to do, like, going to the driving range or going to uh, restaurants and tapas bars and and etc etc we're in a we're in entertainment's business and i don't think we're giving people that opportunity to come along to a game where it's reasonably uh, priced and sit in good accommodation and get looked after and it actually it'd be a it's not just about the game it's about the environment you go to the nfl and the tailgating and the parties before and after the game and the barbecues absolutely drive people to that game, absolutely take people to that game because of the occasion. And for me, the, the cheer girls, the bands, the, the things that I'd seen 10, 15 years ago in Super League seem to have dried up. There's the odd one or two club, get clubs that'll do a, a firework display, but it's it, we're competing here against, you know, these kids, especially these young people have, I've got that that much experience now of of going to university and experiencing life away from the heartlands that when they want to spend the money now they've they've got to be entertained and I think we're just failing in that regard. I wholeheartedly agree with everything you've said there, John. We've had these conversations before, Craig, haven't we? And I think until until the players get so short, don't they? They produce on the pitch nine times out of ten a, a spectacle which is worth paying for it's the people the administrators of the game who really need to step up to the mark now and, and, and drive our game forward and obviously Robert Elston steps away um, from from Super League and hopefully somebody can, can step into his, his role and, and unite the sport and, and get the clubs on board and get the RFL working together and really driving the game forward yeah I totally agree with you well I think that draws our podcast to an end as i said earlier on i think we could go on forever listening to you talk john so so much insight into many facets of the game and obviously got a, a really passionate view on on how the sport could be um delivered and driven for the future and and you know let, let's hope that something like that actually comes to fruition it's been really enjoyable listening to you i'm really pleased you came on thank you for your time i, I hope you've enjoyed it yeah, it's been really good. I've, I've enjoyed uh, listening to you two and me getting a word in edgeways every now and again. It's always been a positive. Um, would there be any chance of a shout out as well, Craig, whilst we're rounding up? Of course you can, John. Go for it. Yeah, just my son's doing some fundraising to to support um, MNDA and Rob Burrow 
um, and the guys at Liverpool Holt Men's Rugby Union team uh, set a target of running 7Ks every day through February. I think they've dropped like flies. I think my lad and two others are, are down to this last couple of runs. So uh, Cameron is his name. He's he's raising money for Rob. Currently they're on four and a half grand and they're aiming to get to five grand. Uh, they're just giving pages. Liverpool hopes 7K a day for MNDA. Uh, if you give that a shout out, that'd be fantastic, guys. Yeah, we'll give that a share on social media, Craig, as well, won't we? Yeah, of course we will. And obviously, for for anyone who's, who's who's still listening, you know, if you can spare a couple of quid to to sponsor John's lad there and his effort for for someone that the rugby league family um, has got full admiration for, and Rob Burrow, and obviously the the Motor Neurons Disease Association. Um, you know, let, let, let's uh, let's all get behind that and give give Sharp his lad a bit of a boost and get him to that that five thousand pound mark if we can. Well, thank you to John Sharp for joining us on episode eleven of Set Restart. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we hope you join us next week for another episode. Thank you. <laughs>